Let's pray together, shall we, before we begin tonight. Father, we want to thank you that Jesus rose from the dead. And we want to thank you that that tomb was empty. Father, and thank you too that the witnesses went and they looked into that tomb and they declared to us the truth that they found, that Jesus Christ was not there. He has risen from the dead. And we thank you, Father, that because his tomb was empty, so our tomb is also going to be empty. And we thank you for all those of your people who have died in the last 1900 years, that the day is coming when they will hear the trump of God and they will rise from the dead and receive their resurrection bodies. Father, we thank you too that that is our lot. And thank you that the hope that was in Job is also our hope, that one day we shall, with our own eyes, see our Redeemer, for he lives. Hallelujah. And Father, we thank you that Jesus is alive even tonight and is always there to make intercession for us. We thank you that today he has been our defense lawyer. Thank you that all the attacks of the enemy have become as nothing before his defense so that we tonight can come boldly before you knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we are clothed with the righteousness, the wonderful positive righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, it is with you that we have to do, and I want to thank you that you are such a wonderful and righteous and just God. Thank you that Jesus came. He didn't have to, but he did because he loved us. And he suffered and he died for all of us, wretched sinners, fallen humanity, that we should ever live face to face with him. Father, I pray tonight, Lord, that you will give me the words, even as you gave John, when he saw these glorious things, that we should see what is the hope of our salvation and see how we are going to spend forever and forever in the eternal state. Oh, Father, please take my lips and may they be the words of God speaking out. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. We are very rapidly coming to the climax of history in our studies and therefore, unfortunately, to the end of this prophecy series. Tonight we're going to cover the subject, or begin the subject at least, of the eternal state. Now could I say something about this before I begin? I think that the eternal state is one of the most misunderstood eras that the, the Word of God actually devotes itself to. Most people understand about the time of Abraham or about the church, and some understand about the tribulation and the millennium, but very, very few indeed seem to have an understanding of the eternal state. If you ask the majority of Christians today, what is the eternal state? Some of them will give you the answer, oh, it's not important. When it comes, it comes. You know, we don't have to study that now. Others will admit quite readily that they just don't know anything about it. And some, very mistakenly, will say, oh, isn't that the millennium? Well, I hope there's no one in this room now who thinks that the eternal state is the same as the millennium. If you do, you're very, very wrong indeed. All right? You're very wrong in your understanding. The millennium, you remember, lasts only 1,000 years. Whereas the eternal state lasts forever and forever. Amen. The millennium was given by God and is to be on this earth for a specific purpose. 
for 1,000 years, Jesus Christ reigns on this earth to prove to man something about himself. And the thing that God proves to man is this, that there is no man who has rejected Christ for any other reason than the, the fact that he hates God. In the millennium, you remember, men are on the face of this earth. They actually are able to see Jesus any time they want to see him. They have perfect environment. They have universal peace. They have universal prosperity. And yet they still reject the work that Jesus did on the cross. Oh, it's appalling when you think of it. At the very end of the millennium, when Satan is released for a short season, these people who have enjoyed all these benefits suddenly, with one accord, rush after Satan and they all rebel against the Lord. That happens just after the millennium. And let me tell you this, if our hope is in the millennium, we are to be pitied, certainly not to be envied. Now I trust no one in this room makes a mistake like that. But before we leave the millennium altogether and actually go on to the period that follows it, which is the eternal state, I want to underline one thing that we saw last time. And it was this. Do remember that we saw most clearly that the answer to man's problems lies in the person of Jesus Christ and in him alone. The answer to universal prosperity, universal blessing, and universal peace lies in one person, the man God, Jesus Christ, and in nothing and no one else. Now that's an absolutely essential lesson for us to learn, because it is that fact that the devil wants to gloss over and hide as best as he can. Don't you think and I hope no one does in this room, that it's only Bible-believing Christians who are, are looking for the millennium and who believe in the millennium. I hope you don't think that. Actually, a lot of people on the face of the earth today seek the millennium. The biggest group on the face of the earth is, of course, the communist group. Do you know that the communists are aiming to establish the millennium on the earth? Did you know that? They are a religious group. What do they want? They want universal prosperity, a chicken in every pot. They want universal peace, and they want all of man's problems to be solved. And their way of doing it is through communism. You see? Now that is the belief in the millennium. And the communists honestly believe in the millennium. They do. And they got their ideas from the Bible and from Bible-believing Christians, by the way. They're not the only ones either. All revolutionary groups, all guerrilla movements, all aim to establish the millennium in some part. They all see a social injustice, and they all think that their movement has got the answer to that particular social injustice. That is a movement towards the millennium. The United Nations believes it, CND believes it, they are all heading for the millennium. But what's the big difference between the millennium in the Bible and the millennium that they are preaching? One is centered in the person of Christ, and the other ignores Christ altogether. This is vitally important for us. Don't turn to the passage, but in 1 John 2.18, John speaks about a certain word. He talks about the word anti-Christ. And what he says is this. Look, he says, a man's coming that is called the Antichrist. We've studied him in the tribulation. 
But he says, but don't only think of that man. For he says, all around you there are antichrists. Now what does the word antichrist mean? Most people can see it's, it can be split in half, the word anti and the word Christ. But then most people make a fallacious assumption. They think that the word anti means against. So they think, oh, antichrist, anything that's against Christ. Now, if it was as easy as that, we'd all be able to recognize antichrists around us. It's not true. The word anti, A-N-T-I, is a Greek preposition which does not mean against, but means instead of. We actually studied this when we were dealing with the head covering of women. Do you remember it says in, in the passage in Corinthians we studied that a woman's hair has been given to her anti, instead of a covering. The word means instead of. And antichrist does not mean anti-Christ, against Christ. It means anything that is instead of Christ. And so, you see, because of our studies in the millennium, we are able to look around us and we can actually see whether there are antichrists in our own society. And the answer is, yes, there are. There are men who are instead of Christ. Oh, they may think Christ was a good man, and they may think that he was a rather interesting character who showed us how to live, but they still think that we can now do it for ourselves. In other words, it's instead of Christ. All of these move movements try and replace Christ. We've got to keep that centrally in our thinking, because the major attack, or one of the major attacks, on Christians today from the devil comes like this. He gets people who were firmly evangelical, that is, they preach the gospel, and he gets them more interested in social issues or political issues than anything else. I have known wonderful Christians who today are knocking on people's doors not to tell them about Jesus, but to tell them about a political philosophy that they think is there to solve the problems of the world. Now, we must watch most carefully uh, that we don't fall into this trap. It is good to do good in the world. It is wonderful to do that, as long as we see that man's problems can only be solved by Christ and by Christ alone. A man needs the gospel more than he needs food, more than he needs housing, more than he needs clothing, because those things will only last for 30 or 40 or 50 years, but the gospel will last for all eternity. And this is what we've got to keep in our thinking, right? I know full well there are many people who will go to hell when they die because they had a full stomach, because they had the television blinking away, hiding their problems from them. And the Holy Spirit is preaching the gospel to their hearts. And everything of the world is coming in to try and gloss over the basic problem that they need Jesus. Now, our first call, and we learn this from our studies in the millennium, is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say that as a word of warning, lest any of us should be mistaken. All right, we can leave the millennium at that point. And to do it, and to go on to the eternal state, let's just read in Revelation 20, where, of course, we see what we studied last time, the revolt which occurs after the millennium. I'm going to read from verse 7. Those of you who were here should understand this passage very well. 
Revelation 20, beginning verse 7, I'm just going to read it through. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And at that point we're ready to start the eternal state. For in the next verse we see what the future for this earth is and what the future for its atmosphere and probably the universe is as well. Does it have a future? Only a little one. Verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now this word heaven either just means the atmosphere or it means the atmosphere and the universe. It does not mean the third heaven, which is where, of course, the throne room of God is. But the visible universe fled from the face of Jesus. And all of a sudden, he that had been holding every molecule together by his power just releases it. The phrase used in 2 Peter is that the earth and the heavens just dissolve. Have you ever seen a, a cube of sugar in a cup of hot water? And you're looking at it, and as you look at it, it seems to crumble away. That's exactly what's going to happen to the Earth. Every molecule is going to split up into atomic particles, and they're not going to be seen. And all that's going to be seen is a throne suspended on nothing. Hallelujah. And a massive white throne with the Lord on it dominates the horizon. And this is the time of judgment that is coming. And look what happens in verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. You remember, as we've seen already, that every believer at this point has been raised from the dead. The ones who are raised at this point are all unbelievers. The church has been raptured. The Old Testament saints have been raised. The tribulational martyrs have been raised. Every believer is now in a resurrection body and raised. These are all unbelievers, and the day of judgment has come. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things <clears throat> which were written in the books, according to their works. The first thing that happens is, it is, the book of life is checked to make sure that none of their names are in that book. You remember, don't you, that it is going to be only believers' names that are in the book of life. Not one unbeliever will be in the book of life at this time. And so the first thing that happens, because God is just, he checks that these people are not written in there. So all the people who stand before him are those who've rejected the gospel message. And then it says this, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, not according to their sins. 
You remember that when Jesus died on the cross, he died not just for your sins. He died for the sins of the whole world so that every man could be saved if he wanted to be and if he would turn to the Lord. There's only one sin that a man is going to be judged for and that is, has he accepted the good news of Jesus Christ or not? This is the unforgivable sin, you see? Whether people have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ or whether they have not. If they have not believed, then their names are not in the Lamb's Book of Life and they will be judged. It means this. These are people who have rejected the work of Christ and so have only their own works to stand up. And the small and the great are going to stand before God and God has a book in which he has written down everything that they have done. The sins are blotted out, but these are every good thing that they've done in their lives. And what God is trying to do is this. He is going to tot up all their good things to see if there's enough righteousness there to get them through into the eternal state. That's what he wants to do. Do you see how loving God is? didn't have to do this. The tragedy is, of course, that as Isaiah says so clearly, every good deed is just like a filthy rag. And the more good deeds God looks down, the more inadequate they are. And finally, when he's checked everything, he looks at the man and says, your own works add up to not enough. And there's only one result. You have rejected the work of Christ. Therefore, the judgment is yours to bear. And we see what happens. Verse 13 describes where the dead rise from, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And this is lovely, because at this point, death has no one in its grasp at all. And as 1 Corinthians 15 says so clearly, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Well, this is the final destruction of death. No one is left in its grasp. And notice too, hell is emptied. Some people say to non-Christians, you will spend eternity in hell. That's not true. That's not true. The word hell is simply the unseen state. It is the place where the unbelieving dead go and that they are kept there until the judgment day. And at the judgment day, hell is emptied and has no more use. And these people rise from the dead. This is the agony, isn't it? Your non-Christian next-door neighbor who thinks that death is just the end of everything, he's in for a most terrible shock, for he will find that the day is coming when even he will be raised from the dead to stand before his maker. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, not according to their sins. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, like a used pea pod with no more use. It's just th they're just thrown into the lake of fire. And it says this is the second death. Now, let's understand this. The first death in the Bible refers to a man's physical death. That's man's physical death. The second death refers to the time when unbelievers will be thrown into the lake of fire. The good news of Jesus is this. Any man who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will never, ever, ever be judged in the lake of fire. We see that in verse 6 of Revelation 20. 
in verse 6, we have something called the first resurrection. I'll tell you what that is when we read it. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now the first resurrection refers to the resurrection of all believers. The resurrection of believers. So the order is this. Most people will suffer the first death. There may be some in this room who will not, because the rapture of the church will come, but most people will. Don't worry, you'll be face to face with the Lord. Wonderful. Then the day will come when, if you're a believer, you will experience resurrection. That's called the first resurrection. All the unbelievers will be left in the realm of death. And it is those who are left who will experience the second death. No believer suffers the second death. Not one believer anywhere. Praise God. All right? So back to the end of Revelation 20. Verse 14, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Verse 15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what do we find? We find, first of all, the old earth is passed away, the old heaven is passed away, and the old creation is now passed away. There are no unbelievers left. There's no devil, there's no death, and there's no hell. And now we're ready to start talking about the eternal state. Your hope in the millennium? May God forbid the thought. Absolutely not. Our hope is in the eternal state where we shall spend forever face to face with the Lord. All right, let's have a look at it. Here we find that the eternal state is the realm of the new creation. And in verse 1 we see the two essential parts of this brand new creation. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now it could be that the Lord brings all the atoms back together in a different form. Or it could be that he creates a whole new set of atoms. It really doesn't matter. All we know is that this is brand new. There's nothing which resembles or reminds us of the old earth and the old heaven anymore. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And that means absolutely obliterated. So as not to be named again. And then you are given one detail. Just one little phrase is added to the end. And it might surprise you. And there was no more sea. I must say, when I first read this verse, I remember thinking, what an odd thing to pin pinpoint, you know? I mean, if I was describing a new heaven and new earth, and I was permitted to give one detail about it, I don't think I'd have mentioned that there was no sea. But fortunately, I didn't write the Bible. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit, who wrote the Bible, knew exactly what he was doing. Because it came as a revelation to me that in that one short phrase we, we have so much detail. It's voluminous, the detail that is given to us. There's no more sea on the new earth. Absolutely none. Well, what does the sea do as far as our earth is concerned? 
That's the question we've got to ask if we're going to understand this. The sea has several purposes. For example, it gives us oxygen. But there's one overriding purpose, the purpose actually that I think was dominant in God's mind when he created the present earth with the sea. He permitted 70% of the earth's surface to be covered with a salty liquid that we call sea. And the great thing about this salty liquid is this. It's a very good antiseptic and cleanser. God knew that once man had fallen, that the fall would spread upon all of creation. And once you have a fallen creation, you have waste products full of infection, full of bacteria, full of disease. And God so loved this earth that he was not prepared for the fall to infect and infest the whole surface of the earth. So what did he do? Why? He bathed the whole earth in heavenly dettol. Hallelujah. <laughs> a liquid which was deep and available and into which fallen humanity could cast his, his offshoots, cast his refuse, so that all the diseases would be limited and that they wouldn't take over and control the earth. But what do you read? The new heaven and the new earth don't have any sea. Hallelujah. Well, what does it mean? There's no fall in the new heaven and the new earth. Absolutely none. There's no fall, there's no decay, there's no sickness, there's no disease, there's no infection. So there's no need for a sea. It is perfection itself. You'll remember, won't you, in the millennium, the old sin nature's still around. You still need a sea in the millennium. The millennium has nothing in comparison to the new heaven and the new earth. What a wonderful thing. Fancy just writing that little phrase, there shall be no more sea, and it means so much to us. All right. Not only a new heaven and a new earth, but in verse 2, we see the one city that is going to dominate the face of the new earth. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now what does that last bit mean? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband? Why? It refers to the age-long ceremony that all brides have gone through to beautify themselves. They spend hours choosing their dress or making their dress, choosing the colors, picking the right hairstyle, the right veil, you know, choosing the makeup you know, that will uh, actually depress their wrong features and bring out their good features. And what this is actually saying is this, that when a bride appears in the church, she is adorned for her husband. She is prepared for her husband. And so it's saying, when the new Jerusalem appeared, it was so glorious, it is quite obvious that God's full beauty and creatorship has gone into it. Its appearance on the new earth is dramatic and wonderful. You'll notice something, however. There is no statement here that the new Jerusalem is created at the same time that the new earth is created. In fact, it says here that John saw it coming down from heaven. You see? And we're not told it's the new heaven either. And this gives us a wonderful clue because it shows us that this new Jerusalem has been in existence before the eternal state comes. Now, if it has, are there any other references to this city? The answer is yes, there are some glorious ones. So let's leave the book of Revelation for the moment and let's go to the book of Hebrews and chapter 11. 
the so-called Hall of Faith. And let's go to verse 8 to 10. <clears throat> you better listen carefully, by the way. You'll be spending eternity in this city. <laughs> Hallelujah. So let's try and get a picture of what it's like. Now, here we have a reference to Abraham. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith, verse 9 of Hebrews 11, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now that tells us something wonderful. For all his life, he and his family lived under canvas, or really under goatskin, as it was. They never set foot in a city and dwelt there. Right? It was all right for Lot. It was not all right for Abraham. The reason why he was not prepared to live in the city is given in verse 10. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And this tells us something, that God actually told him, Abraham, I've got a city which I am building for you. And Abraham said, that's wonderful. You'll notice, by the way, he didn't take it allegorically. He didn't say, oh, well, this is a, a picture language, meaning, you know, that somewhere in Bogner there'll be a lovely house that's just for me. He didn't take it like that. He took it absolutely literally. God, if there's a city that you have built and you've laid the foundations, that's the only city I'm going to live in. And he looked at Sodom and he looked at Gomorrah and he looked at Zeboim and all the other places and he said, well, God didn't lay those and I'm not living there. All right, Lot, in you go, but I'm not going. You see? He lived under a goatskin all his life looking for the city. And in his lifetime, he never saw the city. But the great news is, for all eternity, he's going to live in it. What is the city that God promised Abraham? It's the new Jerusalem, and it's in heaven at this very moment as it was in the days of Abraham. And Abraham was so desirous to live in it, he wouldn't live anywhere else. And God's going to fulfill his promise and keep his word. Abraham's coming into his city. And I imagine there's going to be a special party, by the way, when Abraham comes in. That's what I honestly believe, because this man of faith was so tremendous over this. Go on to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 and verse 22, where we see who's going to live in New Jerusalem. <clears throat> Some Christians don't like this because they think they're the, going to be the only ones who are going to live in New Jerusalem. Well, all cities, you know, have different quarters, don't they? You know, there's a place where the royalty live, there's a place where the aristocracy live, there's a place where the uh, merchantmen lives, there's a place where the slum dwellers were and all the rest. Well, the New Jerusalem won't have any slum dwellers, but it will have different areas where different groups are going to live. Verse 22, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Here it is. And then it lists the inhabitants. Look who's going to be there. First of all, an innumerable company of angels. All the elect angels are going to live in the New Jerusalem. Right? You may have them as your next-door neighbors. And they'll be telling a story or two, I assure you. <laughs> Verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. And all of that means the church of Jesus Christ. So the church is going to be in New Jerusalem. So that's the second company. 
Next, and to God, the judge of all men. Isn't that lovely? God is going to live in this city as well. And do you know why he's called the judge here? To show that he will still be absolutely righteous and absolutely just when he's in the New Jerusalem. Some people think, you know, that, oh, everyone's going to be saved. You know, of course they are. God's, God's is so loving. They concentrate on the love to the exclusion of everything else. Anyone can get in. This shows us, oh no, the absolute righteousness and justice are going to remain intact forever and ever. But he will be in the New Jerusalem too, living right in the midst of the city, even where we are. Then it says, unto the spirits of just men made perfect, these are the Old Testament believers. They're all going to be there, Moses and the lot. And verse 24, and to Jesus, he is also going to live in the New Jerusalem. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. For Abel's blood called for vengeance, Jesus' blood calls for forgiveness. Fine. Having seen that the New Jerusalem is already in existence, this is the same city that John sees coming down, and it's beautiful. Now, he's got the difficult job of trying to tell us just how beautiful that city is, and it's easier said than done. I'm going to have enough trouble trying to get it over. So let's see how we get on. Revelation 21, and verse 3, tells us that we'll be living with God. And I heard a great voice out of heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. In other words, we will live next door to him. And that means our sins are forgiven and we've been declared righteous. Jesus Christ, by his work on the cross, not only forgave your sins, he also gave you his righteousness so that you can live in juxtaposition with God. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And verse 4 describes the bliss. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. No more crying there. Hallelujah. We are going to see the king. There shall be no more death. Why? Well, death is in the lake of fire, right? Not, honestly, his victory is going to be greater than death's victory. Death's in the lake of fire. There's no more death. No more sorrow. You're not even going to feel slightly sad or a bit jaded. Nothing like it. Absolutely no more sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And verse 5, in case you don't believe it, this is added. And he that sat upon the throne, fancy this, heaven and earth have fled before him, but John's still standing there. He that sat upon this throne actually said something. Behold, uh, sorry, verse 5, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Which means it's absolute truth and you can trust them. It really is going to happen just like this. And that's the word of the Lord it's himself speaking from the throne. He said unto me, It is done, he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto them that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely, he says. In other words, it's you that will cut yourself out of this blessing, not God. It's free salvation. 
Wonderful. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved forever and forever. He that overcometh, that's all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, shall inherit all these things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. And verse 8, these are typical of unbelievers. They're not going to be in the new creation. But the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, and the murderers, and the whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Whenever you read something like that, it is saying these are the things that typify unbelievers. And when I read a verse like this, it challenges me. For I say, well, Lord, if the unbelievers are doing that, why am I doing it? Why do I still have fear in my heart? And sometimes, why am I unbelieving? Lord, cast it from me in Jesus' name into the biggest lake of fire that you've got. And then we get back to the city. Verse 9. This angel has been extremely busy. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, we can't be sure when we read that whether it means this bride, the city that's, that's been described, or whether it actually means the church. And it doesn't really matter because the end result is that John gets a closer look at the city anyway. And so they start zooming in on the city. And now the trouble begins because John has to try and describe what he sees. And it's almost indescribable. I expect when we get there, we'll say, well, really, John, you tried your best. But uh, didn't really come over. Look what it says. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And then verse 11, having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now he looks at this city and the first thing he notices is that it's got the glory of God upon it. Now there's a good reason for that, and it's this, that God is in the center of it and is the light of the city. So this glorious light is pouring from the Lord and it fills the whole city. And doesn't only fill it, what this verse means is that the whole city is transparent. I, the nearest I can get is like this. Imagine a huge diamond which has been carved out and the Lord is in the center of the diamond. And every single part of the diamond is catching the light coming from the center of it. And it's scintillating, it's shimmering, it's sparkling, and it's like a prism breaking up the light. You have something that is transparent as crystal, and yet has all the colors of the spectrum interwoven in it, and that is so shimmering, I should imagine it's very hard to look at. And it says here, it's like a jasper. Now, a jasper is a green-colored precious stone, a green-colored one. Well, why is it green? Green, actually, in the Bible, stands for the faithfulness of God. And this whole city is going to stand for the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 4, we have a description of the throne, and it actually says that the throne is like jasper with an emerald green rainbow. How can you... Imagine that. It's all emerald green, yet it's different colors of the rainbow all around it. Now, that throne is the source of the coloring and the light of the whole city. And that's why the whole city's got a greeny hue to it. 
you know, but it's beautiful and shimmering and sparkling at the same time. And then it starts describing what, or John starts describing what the city is like. First of all, he notices that this city has a wall around it. And when we first see the wall, it looks pretty big. And it had a, a wall, great and high, all the way around it. Now, a wall, of course, on an ancient city was to keep out intruders. And what this stands for is the fact that not everyone is going to be in this city. The unbelievers are outside, right? They're in the lake of fire. And this is just a symbol which is incorporated in the New Jerusalem to show that it depends on going through the gate. That's how you get into the city. You, not anyone can just enter. You have to come through one of the gates. It talks about the gates and says that this wall had 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, which were standing on guard by the gate. We'll see something of this next week. And names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So you have a, a wall all the way around the city, and you've got 12 gates. There are three on each side, and there's a, a, a guardian angel over each. And over each of the gates is the name of one of the tribes of Israel. Now, what does that mean? That is showing us that salvation is of the Jews, right? Remember, please, there is no salvation outside the Jewish nation. God said to Abraham, I will bless the whole world by you. And he meant by you only. And that is what this signifies. Jesus, our Savior, was a Jew. This Bible is a Jewish book, right? The Gentile writer in the New Testament is Luke. All the others are Jews. Salvation, as Jesus said in John 4, is of the Jew. Now that's what that signifies. So, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Again, these are Jewish men who told us the revelation of Christ. And they're in the wall because, because it was them that showed clearly that there is salvation by none other, but only through Jesus Christ. Not any man, and I repeat it, can receive salvation. Only those who come via Jesus Christ. And he is the one revealed through the Jews and through the apostles. Now, this is the important message here. So that's the wall. And in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now in verse 15, a surveyor arrives, and he's going to start measuring the city. You see? And as soon as he starts doing it, the wall becomes puny. Funny, it changes somehow. And here it is. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. Now, we don't know how long his reed was. I should imagine it had to be pretty long. They were normally ten foot only in the ancient world. And here's how big the city is. Verse 16. And the city lieth four square. I better draw it up so that we can see it. It won't look a bit like my picture. The city lies four square. And it gives the lengths. And the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs. And that, for your information, is 1,500 miles. 
It's 1,500 miles long and 1,500 miles wide, and it's square. But notice then the extra detail. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So it's also 1,500 miles tall. Now, if that is the case, it's either, and it is, of course, uh, if and it is, if that is the case, then, of course, it can be one of two shapes. It is either a cube or it is a pyramid. Right? It's one of those two. If it's a cube, by the way, the cubic volume is 3,000 million cubic miles. That's uh, pretty large. By the way, some people come along here and say, oh, this must be picture language, they say. You couldn't have a city that large in the land of Israel. <laughs> now, if ever you hear someone talking like that, please remind them, this is the new earth we're talking about, right? That's it. By the way, if it's a pyramid, it's almost acting like a prism, you see? All the light coming in, being broken out. Oh, it's absolutely thrilling. There it is. So they're all equal. Verse 17, and then he measured the wall thereof. Now there's a wall, and we're back to the wall, all the way round it. Well, the wall, first of all, is 6,000 miles in length, isn't it? It has to go all the way round the city. But look how tall it is. It's 144 cubits. That's 216 feet. Hardly there at all. If you see the city, you can hardly see the wall by the side of it. The city is 1,500 miles tall. The wall is 216 feet. What does that mean? Well, it simply means God's going to do the protection, not the wall. Do you see? The wall is only symbolic and for the reasons that I've told you before. But the wonderful thing is, the building of the wall, verse 18 of it, was of jasper. Now imagine one crystal of jasper, 6,000 miles in length and 216 feet tall. Has to be God. <laughs> and the next phrase, and the city, and this is wonderful, was pure gold, yet like unto clear glass. So imagine a bar of gold, which is real gold, except it's transparent. That's what the city was made of. We're dealing with something here that is just fantastic. It's the only way you can describe it got all the color of gold and it is gold but it's transparent it's clear as glass there's no opaqueness in it you know it's a wonderful thing all right and because it's so clear of course you can see all the foundations and as he looks at these foundations he sees all of their colors distinctly and yet they're all sort of intermingled as well and incorporated in the whole color of the city it's quite indescribable, this. Well, let's just go through the foundations. They're very wonderful. The foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. That's green, right? So he sees the color green. The second was sapphire, which, of course, is blue. The third was a chalcedony. Now, a chalcedony is blue again, but it's sky blue. So you've got a slightly different hue uh, as far as the blue is concerned. The fourth was an emerald, and that's emerald green, of course. The fifth was sardonyx, and sardonyx is red and white. It's a red and white stone. Now you've changed color. 
Next, the sixth was a sardius, which again was uh, a red color. You see, so you stick with the reds. The seventh was a chrysolite, which is a golden color, a gold color. The eighth was a beryl color, which of course is sea green. The ninth was a topaz, which is a yellow green. The tenth was a chrysoprasus, a chrysoprasus, which again is green. Now there's a dominance of green here. The eleventh then, a jacinth, which is violet. And the last one, an amethyst, which is of course purple. And he sees all of this color. I, you couldn't paint this. It would be impossible to paint it because they're all transparent and you can all see the colors through the other colors. It is absolutely the most beautiful thing you can ever imagine. And this is how he describes it. All right, having done the foundations, he then goes on in verse 21 to the gates. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. 12 pearls. And people say, oh, it can't be literal again. You don't get pearls that big. <laughs> well, with God, you do get pearls that big because he builds the gates out of these pearls. But why is it that God chooses a pearl for the gates? It's wonderful. You see, a pearl is formed in agony in an oyster. And it's there to show that there's no one who enters the city except by the agony of Christ. This whole city is there as a testimony to the work of Jesus Christ. You've got to come in by the pearly gate, and that's it. This is where the phrase pearly gates comes from, by the way. And St. Peter won't be waiting for you. He'll be coming in with you, which is lovely. <laughs> and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate, each individual gate, was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. So that you look at the street and you can see it's gold, but you can see all the foundations under it as well, with all the colors. It's thrilling. And then verse 22, And I saw no temple, no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Now the temples were always a picture of the work of Christ. Well, you don't need a picture of the work of Christ now. You've got Christ himself in the midst, and his work is complete, so there is no temple in the city. The Lamb is the temple thereof. All right? You'll notice, by the way, that in the millennial uh, Jerusalem, there is a temple. This is not referring to the millennial Jerusalem or temple. No sacrifices? No. Total perfection has come. This is not the, the minor beauty of the millennium. This is the perfect beauty of the eternal state. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Wonderful. No day or night, the Lamb's always there, and the, he is the source of light, which makes the whole thing sparkle. Verse 24, the word nations here is the word Gentiles, and it's to remind the Jews that they and they alone are not going to be saved. They will be saved as well as the Gentiles. And the Gentiles of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. We'll all live by the light coming from the Lamb forever and forever. Wonderful. And then it says, And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. 
Now this is a reminder of the fact that on the earth today there are many who have glory, but all glory belongs to God. And all the glory that God has lent out to other people is all going to be invested in the New Jerusalem. You think of the way some of these kings have dressed that have been in past history. All that glory is going to be added together and that will be invested in the city as well. It's the only way John can describe the type of glory that he sees in front of him. Verse 25, And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And in the ancient world, you only shut the gates at night to keep the wild animals out and the intruders out. Here there isn't any night, so the gates are always open as a testimony to the fact that salvation was available for all men just to receive. And, that people, and also testimony, of course, to the fact that certain people didn't receive it. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. All the nations that have ever existed, all their glory is now back in God's hands and he will put it into this new Jerusalem. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now there, very rapidly, is a description of the brand new Jerusalem where all believers are going to live forever and forever in the presence of Jesus. It is symbolized by eternal life, which absolutely flows throughout the whole city, and by utter purity. This is the hope of the Christian, that forever and forever we will inhabit his courts. We are going to live forever with such beauty and glory around us, most of us can hardly take it in. This is a fantastic hope. This is the hope that every Christian has within him. I tell you, the description here is so lovely, I can hardly wait to see it with my own eyes. But with my own eyes, I'm going to see it. And let me tell you, as soon as we see it, it will be a full manifestation of the glory of the Lamb. And we will just fall headlong when we see the glory that is revealed. How John could stand at all and write, I haven't the foggiest idea. It was the Holy Spirit that had to touch him. Praise the name of the Lord. This is the glorious future that God has got for you. We should be willing to be like Abraham if necessary, suffering with Jesus outside the camp, but knowing that for the glory that lies ahead, it's all worth it. Every problem you have, every crisis that you have, every failure and every heartache that you have is as nothing compared to the glories that will be yours as far as the New Jerusalem is concerned. Well, next week we're going on to the last five verses of prophecy. Revelation 22, 1 to 5, and we're going to see the completion of the whole of God's plan. My prayer for you tonight is that as you go away and read this, you may catch a heavenly vision of this heavenly Jerusalem and find that your heart is stirred in longing so that you say, Lord, come and come quickly. Amen. Amen.